Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined once again by author, filmmaker, astrologer, mystic, and counterculture icon, Antero Ali. Antero and I had so much fun during our first podcast interview that we decided to get together again on the sooner side of later for a deep dive into fundamentalism as a languaging virus and other things. Before we dive into this rollicking conversation, I am reminding you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button. As well, let me just give you a lay of the land of how we structure things here at WordUp if this happens to be your first time joining us. The way it works is that the first half of my every podcast interview is free for the public. The second half is available for my paid subscribers at both my Locals community as well as my Patreon community. So you can find both of those either at patreon.com slash or at dannycats.locals.com. The benefit of joining either one of these membership communities is that we have a little bit more leeway, or in, in the case of locals, a lot more leeway in terms of free speech. We get to cross-pollinate with one another to collaborate, to really drop in with the tribe. I host monthly Q&As with the tribe, both on Patreon as well as on locals. I also post unpublished writings there, <clears throat> yet to be published writings, lots of bonus content. And it's also, as I've already said, where you're going to find all of the second half um, videos and audios of my podcast conversations. 
So I highly, highly recommend joining one or both of those communities. As well, you may or may not have heard that I recently broke up with social media. I am no longer posting any of my content on Instagram or on Facebook. I'm no longer willing to share content or to engage platforms that censor, that shadow ban, that suppress, that unwittingly have people unfollowing me without their permission, and that, that don't offer customer service support options. That being said, your best way of staying in touch with me and staying abreast of all my offerings, books, courses, webinars, workshops, live events, is to sign up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. When you sign up there, you will receive a free PDF, five quantum languaging hacks for instant empowerment, which is both illustrated and awesome. I promise not to share your information with anyone. It's just to ensure that we can keep in touch in the midst of so much weird, big, big tech, uh, you know, digital landscape censorship and um, other kind of bizarro behavior. So be sure to sign up for my newsletter and sign up for one, if not both, of my membership platforms and buckle up, get cozy, grab yourself a cup of tea as we dive into my conversation with Antero Ali. Welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. It is my great honor and pleasure to be joined once again by a multimedia artist and astrologer and author and prolific creator and maker, Antero Ali. Hi, Antero. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Um, so, so many things. Um, I know that you had wanted to dive into fundamentalism as a language virus, which I'm super excited to get into. And I also want to talk to you about your filmmaking because I did get a chance to watch The Alchemy of Sulfur. And I also want to talk to you about your upcoming experiential astrology course. So these are, this is everything on, on my to-do list for us today. Is there anything else that you want me to add into the mix? Oh, that's a mouthful right there. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an overachiever. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, the fundamentalist virus, uh, that is an idea I've been following. I don't know if I made it up or I just picked it up from somewhere, but uh, I've been looking at it for about 30 years. And especially how I've seen it um, crop up in a lot of different uh, sectors. Uh, you know, it's commonly, I think, associated, you know, the word associated fundamentalism with Christian dogmatic little bigots are the fundamentalists. And it turns out <clears throat> from what I've seen, um, the fundamentalist thinkers of Christianity make up a pretty small portion of how far uh, the epidemic, the fundamentalist virus has really spread uh, into sciences, uh, into other religions, not just Christianity. And even in the common language of the people um, during the current era of escalating uncertainty 
and the pressing need to become so fucking damn sure about anything. And it's that impulse of um, certitude over perception or um, certitude almost uh, as a um, uh, as an attempt to achieve more security, a sense of security when uh, the state of uncertainty overwhelms, uh, you know, the personal nervous system and produces anxiety. <clears throat> and that's another area, too, that I'm really fascinated with is um, the difference between anxiety and uncertainty, because I, I don't see them as the same at all. Um, you know, I'm looking at uncertainty as pretty much an objective truth. Um, life um, you know, feels uncertain to me. It has always felt that way. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, that's the uncertainty I'm talking about. Anxiety, the anxiety I've experienced in my life and, um, you know, the people that I've worked with, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of people from all different, you know, walks of life and different fields, um, seems to uh, express uh, the individual threshold for how much uncertainty that person can permit before they start behaving um, like a nervous monkey. <laughs> and so as an artist type, um, you know, art is something that I've been, um, you know, laying down my heart and soul for for as long as I can remember. And I'm I'm like almost 70 years right now and I haven't stopped. It'll just, you know, continue until my, you know, last breath probably. But as an artist, I've come to see and experience uncertainty as a creative state. And so I don't want to buffer myself from the experience of uncertainty because it fuels my creative impulse. So I've had to learn how to permit more and more uncertainty. And one way I've learned to do that is through certain uh, linguistic adjustments, certain um, uh, semantic um, uh, adjustments in the way I think and speak. Um, and, you know, uh, one, just one example, there's, you know, quite a few, but one example, um, maybe you've already picked up on this, but I rarely use uh, the word is, you know, I-S, is. Um, what I discovered about the word is, it um, represents in mathematics the equal sign, you know, this equals that, this is that. And I discovered that the more is's I was using, whether it was in speech or in a paragraph I was writing, that the thinking and the writing became more formulaic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yuck, total huge yuck on that. I don't like formulaic thinking. I don't like anything formulaic. Um, it kills the spontaneity. It uh, crimps creativity. Uh, it makes everything predictable. If it's formulaic, it's predictable. Now, unfortunately, the Hollywood film industry and, and the music industry at large has tapped into that predictability and those formulas uh, that are able to, um, you know, uh, uh, transform into big bucks, you know, uh, you know, heavy dollars and and so there's been a, a, a kind of a commercial sanction on um, 
formulaic thinking and and you know just following the formula of things and so it, you know we see this all across the board in the films and the music and the television um very predictable stuff most of it and for me i can't even i can't watch mainstream films anymore because i you know in the first five or ten minutes i know where it's going so i just turn it off so anyway, I'm going to stop here and you know let you respond. Or I can just go running right on here. I love it. Yeah, there there are so many pieces here. So and I'm completely with you on the formulaic nature of of anything Hollywood's putting out these days. Where I I personally can't stomach it myself. I'm curious what sort of replacements you're using for for is and how you've noticed that shifting your writing and your communications? Well, um, I've had to early on, um, probably started around, for me, it was um, around nine, 1991, 92, uh, following um, uh, a tragedy, uh, a great loss um, of my um, second daughter, Zoe, um, that completely, flattened my ego, crushed my life as I knew it. I didn't know what to live for anymore. And, um, and yet at the same time, it opened up um, portals of perception that I had not experienced before. Uh, in other words, for uh, in the moment, I had no idea why what was happening was happening or how it was happening, but I was perceiving way more reality than I knew what to do with. You know, just a lot of impressions coming in. I don't know what to do with all this. And so, you know, up until that point, um, my go-to outlet for, you know, expressing my perceptions was creating theater, uh, which I had done previous for the previous, um, oh man, 20, 20 years or so. And I was thinking, how do I put this into theater? And I just couldn't find a way. And that's when I realized I needed to start looking into cinema and how to um, learn enough about cameras and videos and film cameras and the process of making films. And then finally, I started discovering um, in, in the process of filmmaking um, a very uh, far more uh, complex multi-leveled or multi-tiered um, outlet, you know, for not just um, uh, moving images, but music, sound, um, all kinds of texture and experience that I couldn't really produce, you know, in theater on the stage, um, or at least not as effectively. So that's how it started for me, and it continues to this day, uh, because, you know, you know certain, when certain um, doors of perception are blasted open, they, they can't really close them again. The, the doors, the hinges are blown off, flown off, and they're flying out into the cosmos. So, you know, I'm not going to get those back. Um, so I have a responsibility to, um, uh, to my health, uh, to my art, uh, to my soul, uh, to stay creative. And how I do that is um, I keep making films and they just keep coming through me. And um, I take a rest period, a recovery period between films and then it keeps coming back. So, um, you know, that this is one way that I've come, 
come into it. There, there are other um, kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say minor adjustments because they're significant. They're small but significant adjustments I've made. And I think probably the main, main one there is uh, training my intellect, you know, which is that part of me, which is problem solving, makes making sense of things, labeling things, kind of ordering, putting things in order in my head and all that. The intellect, I've um, over the years, because this has taken a long time, um, training the intellect to follow the dictates of intuition. So I'm actually guided by intuition, by intuition, and then intellect has learned how to give articulation to my intuitive impressions without violating or killing them. Because uh, intellect can be very um, tyrannical. It can become, in a sense, its own kind of fundamentalist uh, preacher saying, oh, this is the right thing. I know what to do. Don't do that. Do this. You know, all those kinds of messages, um, you know, uh, intellect can perform. But I've kind of whipped it into shape. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, it was a kind of... Um, do or die situation because uh, I, I didn't I didn't want to um, make uh, dead art uh, basically is what it came to um, and I think that any art made from conscious mind or intellect is pretty much going to produce dead art um, I needed to find a way to um, serve the expression of art that comes alive, that's animated beyond my control, beyond my comprehension, where it kind of runs away from me and has a life of its own. Um, and, you know, that's uh, something that's really worth following. You know, uh, it makes me feel more alive just, um, you know, pursuing that. Yeah, it's interesting as you're speaking, Antro, is, um, you know, and I'm writing a book right now, so I, I, I know you know what it's like when we're immersed in a project, we kind of filter everything through that lens and, you know, through the themes that we're exploring. But, you know, when you first brought up anxiety versus uncertainty, and you're talking about the intellect coming into right relationship with intuition, I keep thinking of the capital M, capital F, masculine, feminine, polarities and how uncertainty is fundamentally feminine, right? That's the void and that's where every artist has to go to, if we're gonna stay alive and really deal in the realms of, of novelty, of you know, really channeling and working with the unknown versus like recycling the kind of same formula that's worked for us in the past. And I think, you know, I see the intellect as being fundamentally masculine, which is why it's been, you know, we've been all been indoctrinated to put so much emphasis on it um, while, you know, less cultivation towards the intuition, which is feminine. And in my mind, when we talk about the return of the divine feminine, it doesn't really have anything to do with incarnate men and women. Um, it has to do with coming into right relationship with the intellect and intuition and learning to honor these like quieter, more mysterious functions to the same extent that we honor the intellect and reason and, and rationality. Well, <clears throat> see, I'm hearing you out and I'm going along with everything except for the is word because um, you've basically equated uh, intellect is masculine 
intuition is feminine and that's where I get off that boat. I'm not that boat has sailed for me long ago. Um, there's truth to what you're saying, but there's also I I feel more uh, flexibility or let's say almost ambiguity because um, as I have known intuition um, merging uh, with intellect, so they're not so separate in me. And in that merging, it's neither masculine nor feminine, and it's not even androgynous. Uh, there's a, it's like a new creature, a new entity, a new energy, let's call it, uh, when, uh, in the merging of in, in, intuition and intellect. It's kind, uh, kind of an alchemy in a way. Um, and, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, kind of classical or traditional alchemical images, there's always, you know, it's masculine and feminine, but they never stay apart for long. There's a merging there masculine and feminine merge together and that's only the beginning i think of the greater work of alchemy is the merging part of the masculine feminine and then there's you know further stages where they are pulling apart to redefine themselves in relation to each other and then there's there can be this third point um neither masculine nor feminine but perhaps representing the consciousness capable of traversing between masculine and feminine, but does not define itself as residential to either. It's not, you know, identified as gender. It's more maybe as pure consciousness or whatever you want to call that agency allowing us to traverse between masculine and feminine without identifying with either. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and to be clear, like when I'm using the phrases masculine, feminine, I'm not referring to embodied gender at all. I'm referring referring to the complementary opposites. And I see it, you know, I'm I'm a dancer. So I see it if, you know, there's a, a muscle in my leg that's been underdeveloped, it's gonna take some effort for me to get that muscle to be as strong as some of the other muscles so that I'm not overcompensating or leaning too hard on other parts of the body. And once they're all as strong and as nimble, then they can play and create their own flow without me having to overthink, you know, oh, I have to bring this one muscle up to speed. You know, so that's kind of my thought in terms of humanity becoming more comfortable with the unknown and and that larger uncertainty. And I think that that anxiety that you mentioned, that's like that urge to control because we have, you know, we haven't yet developed or cultivated our comfort in the unknown. So it's like that go-to overused tool, you know, let me claim to be certain, let me control, you know, and, and then moving back into fundamentalism. But I'm curious before we get back to the fundamentalism piece, which I'd like to spend a little bit more time on is, A, what words are you employing to replace is, and B, like, do you find it frustrating to dialogue with other people who aren't on board with some of these like linguistic hiccups and snags to the extent that you are? <laughs> uh, um, when I first discovered um, is as a, a kind of an equation uh, symbol, it was really difficult to even notice 
how many times I was using that word. And it was even more difficult once I was aware of how much of how to not just begin minimizing, because I couldn't take them all out, you know, I mean, it was just how do I minimize them? But then how do I think and speak? How do I write in a way, uh, you know, without turning everything into a formula? Like, oh, this is that, and this is that, and I hope you agree with me. Uh, so boring. So um, one of the things I've discovered, and I, I, I use this word discovery, uh, to me it's an important part of this. Um, I think everyone has to kind of discover it on their own, meaning how are they going to talk with less is's, with less uh, formulaic thinking and speaking and writing. Um, one of the things I've discovered in the process of writing, speaking, uh, and thinking um, with less and less of the is word is that my writing and my thinking and my speaking tend to be more direct uh, expressions of an action. It's, uh, it, it brings a dynamism to my language. It brings, uh, uh, I'm not, um, see, every, every time you create a formula and you're basically asking whoever's listening or reading you to agree with it. This is this, oh yeah, that is that, you know. And I'm not really looking for agreements. Um, there's something that happens socially, uh, and you've seen this, I'm sure, it's a very common thing. Um, you get on the phone with a friend, and a lot of the conversation goes on about, I did this and this, oh yeah, I know what that is, I did that too. Oh no, this is what I did, oh yeah, I did that too. So there's this constant agreement upon agreement upon agreement. So that's a form of social bonding, agreements. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had that experience. Yes, I had that experience. Same thing. However, energetically, what happens with the accumulation of agreements is the energy level starts sinking. It goes down. It doesn't go up. It's something you, you, you would have to observe uh, for yourself to see. And this is part of the reason I, I'm not really keen on agreements. Like when I post things on social media or Facebook or, you know, stuff like that. I don't do it for the likes or people to agree with me at all. And that's the thing. I just post what I'm sharing, what I see and know, and that's it. And then I walk away. I'm not looking for agreements because I don't like the feeling of constantly being in the fields of everybody agreeing with everybody else. I don't um, experience that as any genuine or authentic unity amongst people. I really don't. Um, it's a kind of a superficial and kind of a fakey poo unity yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry i was tickled by fakey yeah yeah what tickles me too <laughs> this is really interesting because i've i've recently started giving talks um and you know working with clients with a coaching program that i'm calling the language of healing and when i'm teaching people about transmuting physical discomfort or expressions of dis-ease, I dissuade them from using the I am or the I have, and instead to use more active verbs that are coding, um, that are like programming the body for motion, 
right? So it's not like I am arthritic. It's not that I have arthritis. It's that I'm in the process of healing arthritis. So would that example kind of line up with how you have been moving away from is? Oh, that's great. Those are really good examples. Um, yeah, anything uh, to help uh, yourself and the people you care about or maybe your clients uh, support a move into their more direct firsthand experience of what the hell might be going on. Uh, this capacity for direct experience has been severely diminished by the depersonalization trends of the culture at large. So, and, and there's a lot of different expressions of that trend. You know, it's the economy, it's the interweb, it just goes on and on. And if you're not somehow uh, fighting for your own consciousness, uh, it, it's, it, it gets whittled away. You know, you start dumbing down. Um, and so, you know, I think it's the good, to me, I just used the word is, to me, it's the good fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, you know, to me, what's, to me, <clears throat> fighting for my consciousness um, is probably, uh, is again, see, uh, it's, I stumble over it again. Now, I'm not trying to completely eliminate it. I don't think, I'm not demonizing is, okay, it's not like the, the evil thing that everybody should stop doing. Um, I'm just saying, pay attention to it. Uh, look at what it look. Look what happens when um, you notice it more, and uh, notice the results. Notice the effect of, um, especially especially um, if you're a writer, take a look at a paragraph and circle the ises, and you'll you'll discover right away the degree of formulaic thinking that you're, um, um, you know, trapped in. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you, you know, you and I are sharing a, a similar path in terms of rewriting our own habitual languaging patterns. One thing that I notice about is, you know, and all the other derivations is that um, it transmits a frequency of stagnancy. And I think in addition to the depersonalization trend, there's this other op going on to convince us that we're static. Um, and that the way things are is the way they will always be. So, you know, I'm always encouraging people to use active verbs to accelerate our own transformation and our own growth. It's a, a great idea. Um, you know, it reminds me of um, one of the um, portals of uh, perception that blasted open when my um, daughter passed away. And that was uh, realizing um, how immersed I, I had become in a death ignorant culture. Yeah. Um, and in that death ignorant culture were pretty much all, all things that are dying, like people, they're either in the hospital or in the morgue, but they're, you know, there's more of it on the streets now. There's more of this kind of awareness of impermanence now. But I think that part of the um, uh, the advertising uh, appeal to the youth culture is very large, has a large influence and force in this country. Um, and it promotes um, a false sense of permanence. Um, and so it's a, um, it builds a kind of naivete around impermanence, um, which like uncertainty, uh, you know, represents some um, an objective, um, you know, truth. Um, 
uh, impermanence, everything that uh, lives will die. Uh, there, uh, you know, I don't see any exceptions. No, no, absolutely not. Are you familiar with Stephen Jenkinson's work and writings around death? Um, I have passed through it. Um, I don't um, really read writings on the uh, the death passages and dying, uh, mostly because my um, experience of uh, impermanence has been stamped so deeply into my heart. It's practically like my soul has this big tattoo that says impermanence across it. Um, it's something I live with every day, so I don't really need to you know, read about it. Right. And so I'm curious to know how your own lived experience has shifted by rooting is out of your lexicon. Oh, um, well, um, I've opened to a deeper and more consistent access to uh, creativity in the creative state. Mm. And I've opened up to um, a more supple imagination. And in that, I've been able to combat another uh, epidemic, uh, a linguistic epidemic of overly literalist thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, uh, no fault of their own, is part of the impersonal culture at large. The culture is not personal, uh, impersonal. And it supports this kind of taking everything so damn literally. Well, that alone has um, managed to um, put um, a uh, death spell over the cultural imagination, that the imagination of the culture is turned belly up. And, and it's replaced, uh, supplanted by this kind of more over-literalist uh, thinking and writing and so forth. And the, the problem with it, 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 it tends to be um, disguised or it tries to disguise itself as um, like, like some kind of, um, you know, realism or um, journalistic integrity or, you know, something that is, um, uh, carries more weight, legitimacy, and um, truth than um, the imagination. And I don't believe that. Uh, to me, uh, I experience imagination as a, as a function of intelligence um, uh, that comes alive um, in childhood. And many children still live with an active imagination and active imagination means you're not just imagining but you are learning to inhabit the worlds you imagine and then it becomes an entire state of enchantment that the individual has learned to live in a world of their own creation now this also of course has its dangers you know like anything but it allows for um a discovery of your own vision and the opportunity to create meaning in an existence that appears to be completely void of meaning 
And so if uh, you have enough um, imagination and enough will and incentive, um, you can create the meaning that you used to be seeking. You just stop seeking it. You just make it up. For tuning in to this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I trust you are enjoying my conversation with Antero Ali. I know I sure did. I love every time I get to drop in with him and his beautiful, expansive mind. Please join us for the second half of this conversation, either on my Locals community or my Patreon community or both. <laughs> you can find the second half at dannycats.locals.com as well as patreon.com slash dannycats. Before you navigate on over, be sure to hit that subscribe button to like and to share with your community to remember that you are omniscopic amazingness. Have a rockin' day. I'll see you on one of the other platforms for the rest of my conversation with Antero Ali. Toodles, tribe. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And as you are inspired to learn more about my quantum languaging work, about my books, my homeschool courses, my transformational and empowered badassery coaching, check out my website, dannycats.com. As well, track all of my latest content on my Locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.